Fuckers. Speak and Destroy is a podcast about all things Metallica. I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is Jamie Josta from the band Hatebreed. Jamie is also the frontman of Kingdom of Sorrow, as well as the band Josta, and host of The Josta Show, one of the most popular music podcasts around. Hatebreed has had the opportunity to play with Metallica a couple of times. Kirk Hammett has been a guest on The Josta Show, and he recently devoted an entire episode of the show to Metallica's new album, Hardwired to Self-Destruct. So as my old friend Jamie Josta would say himself, let's start this motherfucker. This is Speak and Destroy. Tell me a little bit about uh, how you grew up and specifically what your introduction to music was in general. Was there stuff around the house? Did you have parents, cousins, relatives that were turning you on to stuff? How did it all begin? Yeah, my parents had a pretty good vinyl collection that we'd break into, and it was very eclectic. It was everybody from Tina Turner to The Doors to the pointer sisters. I mean, there was a lot of, you know, Michael Jackson. Um, but I think, you know, and I was just saying this in another, on another podcast, I was saying, I want to say the white lion had a record in 85. I remember being the mall, new Haven mall. It's no longer there. I think it was chapel street mall. And there was a stand with like these iron ons, like press on, patches and then i was saying oh i like this design the white lion and the guy was like oh it's a band and and he's like here and he so he, he played me some of the music and and uh I, it's had to be 85 i'd have to look it up 85 or 86 i know they had a big ballad when the children cry because i eventually i ended up working for ken creedy who managed Typo Negative, Biohazard, Life of Agony, and he also worked with Mike Tramp from White Lion. I remember being in the basement at their agency, Bay Ridge Talent, and seeing like the White Lion, like gold records and stuff, and being like, why? First of all, why is this in the basement? <laughs> Hanging up on your wall. <laughs> this guy, he had these iron-ons and I, then I remembered I went to, so that was one of the iron-ons. They had a cool logo and then they had, uh, Metallica, um, Dokken. Who else did they have? They had, they had a bunch iron maiden. And then I remember I went to my cousin, John, shout out to, to the mug, Muggleton, John Muggleton. I went to his, we used to go to his house for like Christmas Eve, my aunt Susie, my cousin Lisa and uh, we go to their house and so he had a pretty eclectic taste in music as well he liked Sabbath he liked Iron Maiden but he also liked like Robert Cray and um just other styles of music so that whole like mid to late 80s I was listening to collection I mean at the time I'm eight or right about to be nine so that's a big like developmental sort of period and, and yeah. stage, I guess for any kid. And so, so we're, being so able we're to pretty close to the same age. Cause I was born in 73. So were you like 70, 
seven. I was seven. I'm okay, seventy-seven. Yeah. So we're pretty close. Yeah. So then, flash forward a couple of years, I'm now, you know, using. I, I go to the Q. I take the Q bus down to Cutler's Records, Rhymes Record. I'm now using my own little allowance or, or um, you know, money I would get for Christmas or my birthday, and I would buy records myself. So. I would go and I remember getting Appetite for Destruction. I remember getting Earth AD. I remember getting um, Metallica and Justice for All, which that was a big one. I don't know what year that was. But so between, I say, 87 and 92 is when I really got into rock, metal, punk hardcore i remember i remember telling like the hardcore kids and the punk rock guys at my school like like oh yeah i like this stuff but i also listen to guns and roses and metallic and they'd be like oh what you know and they would give me they'd break my balls about that but i just think but having um an upbringing where there was no guilty pleasures with music my mom would dance and sing to the pointer sisters and tina turner and then my dad would jam you know the doors or whatever i i think having like that sort of family um those interests you know of all different genres i mean there was a couple christmases where i got i remember i got an ll cool j tape yeah i remember um i remember i got the crush groove soundtrack that might have that even might have been earlier i would say crush groove maybe i don't know i'd have to look that up that's probably 84 85 but so i liked hip-hop i love of course when aerosmith and run dmc did their thing i remember seeing that on mtv that was huge. I mean, people don't realize what a breakthrough that was because once that happened, that opened the floodgates for hip hop on MTV in general. You know, and it was like, yeah. oh, it's tricky. Like, this song's cool. Like, finding out that that was, you know, there was more to it than just sort of that novelty song. I think, I think Run DMC, Aerosmith may have been my introduction to hip hop now that I think about it. I think that was probably the gateway. One, two, three. Yeah, I mean, it was for a lot of people. And and I was able to find out that there was different eras of bands. Once I got into music and I would see how certain people would react when you would mention a certain band, um, I would I would go learn the history. So like I, you know, in, in the late 80s and the early 90s, people were already over Aerosmith. Like, pe- right. like Aerosmith fans would scoff at you liking you know, some of their stuff. And then I would go back and see like, oh, well, we actually have some of these albums in the closet upstairs. And so I, you know, (laughs) in in the attic, one might say, yeah, there you go. Um, On the pun. And yeah, um, yeah. I mean, people don't realize, uh, you know, in the grand overview of everything, Aerosmith was kind of washed up when they did that run DMC thing. They almost needed it as much, if not more than run DMC. And they had, you know, they'd done some records like with different guitar players and and then once that Run DMC thing happened, not only were they back, but it was like permanent vacation and like all those huge records we think about from the I guess the late eighties and early nineties with Aerosmith and the the big videos with Alicia Silverstone and all that. That was all post Run DMC. That right and resurgence. And me going to summer camp and me going to 
Uh, I remember one summer we had like a we had a friend who had a pass to like a country club, which was this was unheard of, like especially growing up in the inner city to go. You would drive out. You didn't have a pool at your house. You would drive out, you know, however, to me, it felt like forever. And I remember being in the car. My mother would listen to like Prince and Madonna and like a lot of the the 80s music. But I remember then meeting kids who would also gravitate to heavier music. And you'd be surprised. Aerosmith people. That was a gateway band. So people discovered Guns N' Roses and discovered Metallica and and bigger rock and metal bands because of a band like that. Oh yeah, those gateway bands are always essential I think for a lot of you know subgenres and you know like we were talking about hip hop and that sort of introducing it and something that you know in the pre-internet days that I always found to be important as well which is a tradition that I think bands like Hatebreed have have certainly continued is the props that some bands would get from other bands. You know, I I discovered Public Enemy and that whole era of hip hop. Uh, I mean, this was years before they actually did the song together, but just when Scott Ian from Anthrax would wear a Public Enemy shirts on stage. And I would see pictures of that in magazines. And then there was a kid at my school who wore Public Enemy shirts. And I just straight up one day was like, hey, so what is, I thought it was like a metal band or something. And uh, we ended up making tapes for each other. And I get home and I put in Public Enemy and they sampled Slayer. And I was just like, whoa, what is this? Like, yeah. Slayer, you know? And and you would just discover, like, I, I always, I've told this story on this podcast before even, but my, my introduction to the Dead Kennedys was because David Ellison from Megadeth had a Dead Kennedy sticker on his base and a poster that I had on my wall, you know? And so then you go, you go to the record store, there wasn't any like, oh, I'm going to try this out on Spotify first. Like, it was just... Well, right. dude from Megadeth has this sticker on his base. Um, this must be cool. I'm going to spend every dollar I have right now buying this cassette. I hope I like it. Well, also, in the cassette days, if you were given a tape player for Christmas or if you're for a birthday or whatever, because um, the first tape player that I had was actually wasn't a tape player. It was one of those... Uh, it only would play out of one side. It was like a mono. I forget what the name of it was, but I think it was for people to record interviews onto a tape. Mm. And um, I don't know if it was in my garage or I got it at a garage sale or how I got it, but I would listen. And then I was so a lot of tapes that I would listen to, I would be blown away when I would actually hear it in stereo. Cause then I could hear the other channel. Like I could hear, yeah. like, especially if, especially like if stuff was panned, <laughs> like that blew my mind. Like when I was like, Oh my God, there's a whole other guitar. Yeah. Um, but I remember getting the, uh, the, 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 the little sort of tape deck that was also an AM FM radio and it had a huge antenna and this was probably 87 or 88 because it was, I want to say it was around the time Appetite for Destruction came out. And they were, that hadn't blown up huge yet, but they were being played on 88.7 in West Haven. And I could get that station where I was in New Haven. And so when records would be sent to, any of the DJs that were there, they would play it, you know, before the record would come out, you know how like people used to get promos and you'd be like, mm -hmm. so I, that was a big deal. Like I could tape off the radio, I could tape the radio shows and 
I re- that's how I heard uh, Nirvana Bleach. A lot of college, especially in the late 80s, a lot of college stations started to gravitate more towards indie rock and alternative and that's how I heard of White Zombie. Yeah. That's how I heard of I Helmet. Mean, once upon a time, a lot of that stuff was called "quote unquote" college rock, and that and college yeah. radio was the reason. Yeah, and so by the time those bands blew up, I was like, I guess I was almost like a a, a hipster because I would be like, oh, I heard these guys. Like when Nevermind blew up, I was like, oh, I I heard these guys years ago on eighty eight point seven, and they played the Moon down the road from my house. That was another thing. I they would announce shows, and so one night they announced shows. And I would go, wait a second, Whaley Avenue. I live right off Whaley Avenue. I'm like, so I rode my bike down there. I wasn't supposed to. And I rode my bike down there and I saw like just a line of freaks of guys with <laughs> suspenders on and shaved heads and and guys with exploited T-shirts and mohawks. And then, you know, guys with hoodies. And I remember seeing Chromags and Agnostic Front and Slapshot shirts and thinking, what are, what are these? And then you're right, just like looking at the shirt, I remember seeing the Agnostic Front shirt going into Rhymes Record the next day. Because if you see multiple people wearing one shirt at a show, you go, well, geez, if all these people are wearing this band's shirt, they must be cool. I should check it out. And I got um, uh, Liberty and Justice. I got that tape for a dollar at Rhymes Records. And wow. I skated. I remember skating, listening to Strength Above All. And like, there's some jams on that record. And then from there, same, you know, I asked the kid working at the store who, you know, what other bands kind of sound like this? Oh, check out The Accused, check out um, Uniform Choice, check out this, you know, and then you'd go to the used bin and you would see, like, that was the best way to check out, I guess, bands whose records were universally panned or sucked. <laughs> like you would go to the used like uniform see... choice staring into the sun as opposed to yes. screaming for change. Yeah. Right. Or mind funk. Mind funk. I remember, dude. I remember that thing was fucking, there was like a hundred of them in the see, dollar band. Dude, I dude, bought, I... Because I got a couple years on you. I bought mind funk when it came out. Okay, and I, Cause I was like, Oh, members of Celtic frost and uniform choice this is going to be sick. You know, this was like <laughs> peak metal and hardcore for me. And I bought, it was just when CDs came in long boxes and the thing that I always remember about that Mindfunk long box, and it's just so funny, you know, given everything that we know now in this period of our lives as adults and, you know, working in the music business, they had this marketing thing where there was a Mindfunk t-shirt shrink wrapped inside the shrink wrap with the long box. And so it's just like, imagine how like folded up and flattened a t-shirt had to be to be like <laughs> crammed into that. And uh, yeah, I totally... I, I, I fell for the marketing gimmick. I bought the Mindfunk CD and it was like, oh, it comes with a shirt. <laughs> and then you listen to it and you're like, oh, I will never wear the shirt for this band because this band is awful. <laughs> <laughs> I, that must that was like later on. I think that was like probably more like 94 or 93. But that Jake Bannon, he went through that whole thing. If, if anybody wants to dig deep into my archives there's an episode i did with jake bannon where he was basically like yeah funk metal ruined everything for a minute and he brought up scatterbrain (laughs) oh actually you know scatterbrain they used to have a a decent draw in connecticut and they would do okay there was some that i liked i liked 24 7 spies um there was some that they they could play those shows like i remember maelstrom they were they they were on tang they had a seven inch that i liked um but those 
bands that kind of went that funk metal route. Really, the only one it worked for, I think, was Suicidal and Infectious. Like, yeah. Infectious was the first, like, I would say successful side project or other thing where, like, they played Toads. It was packed. Just as packed, if not more packed, than the Suicidal show. So, I remember a yeah. tour that was probably, like, 95 or something that was, the, the actual tour was Suicidal headlining infectious main support psycho Myco first of three <laughs> so he did a three he did a three yeah. band uh he did his own three band bill uh, yeah i remember that coming through and just being like all right this is this has gotten a little i mean that you know and could you imagine the hate breed kingdom of sorrow josta tour like <laughs> just you'd just be killing yourself like 30 minutes into yeah i did double night. duty a couple times and it's not fun yeah but triple duty that's i mean yeah that's crazy well, he's got more energy than anybody I know. That's so. true, and then that's still the case. Uh, so, when you were getting into metal and everything, you know, you mentioned Angelus for All. Was that the current Metallica release when you discovered them? Yeah, yeah. Because although I had a mixtape that my friend gave me in sixth grade, um, I want to say. I want to, what was the, the metal up your ass? Um, it was like a, they had a, oh, that, that reminds me. That was the, one of the patches that you could get was the, uh, when, when I saw like, you know, the white lion and all these other, like, I guess they were iron ons. No, they might've been back patches, but I think they were iron ons, but the metal up your ass one, my mom was like, no way. Yeah. And when you're a kid, that makes you want it even more. Of course. Dude, I had the one of the best things, speaking of marketing, I had the uh the overkill fuck you EP on cassette. And the cover yes. the cover for that is, you know, a full color middle finger. But when you open the cassette, dude, the uh the insert was reversible. So you could actually flip it around and it had this white cover with no middle finger and the word fuck was censored. And that was the one that like, like I, I had the, like the censored version of the cover facing outward. So anytime like my dad was in my room, it just looked like some, you know, white cassette that just said overkill. Um, and then, you know, if like my friends were coming over or something, I could flip it around and you could see the middle finger in full color. That was genius. I mean, whoever <laughs> thought of that was, was brilliant. I don't know if that was Blitz or DD or somebody at the we record. We should label, ask. But yeah, we I should find actually. out and ask. Yeah. But that, but that T-shirt and or backpatch must have been like the best selling at that time. And so then when I got the uh, the mixtape, I remember putting two two and two together and being like, "Oh wow, this band." That's the metal is up amazing. your ass, guys. Yeah, that's the dagger and, uh, coming out of the toilet, guys. Yeah, and then we had a jam with my first band where the drummer, Doug, we went down his basement. I don't know if this was after. We we jammed in my in the bass player, Greg. Shout out to Doug and Greg. This, I don't even know what we were called then. We didn't. We weren't Josta 14 at this point, I don't think. But um, we'd go to Doug's house after, and he had... We were, I, I want to say we were doing like... we. I might've been on acid or they were on acid or I took weed or I, I smoked weed and they took acid. Um, but I remember being down in his basement and then it got to like, 
Sanitarium. That's on Master of Puppets. So what year was that? 86. Yeah, well, in 86, I was nine. So definitely, I wasn't smoking weed at this point. So this must have been... <laughs> you, weren't, you weren't hanging out with dudes on LSD at nine. <laughs> no, but I was at 13. So if this was 90 or 91, and um, what year did... Uh... Uh, Justice was 88. Okay, so the the it was before the Black Album. So yeah, Justice. That was when I want to say. Let's see. And I and Wayne, our guitar player, he'll listen to this. You know, he's better with all the dates. I fuck up every date. <laughs> um, he's like the he's like the guy who knows. You know, the date of our first show, the date of this, date of that. Anyways, um, around the time of our first show was when I really, maybe I'd have to look it up. I, I want to say it was 92 that we did our first show, or maybe it was 91. And that and, was when and, I realized. And was this Jossa 14 at that point, or was it still I, nameless? No, I think we were called like Dreadnought, or I don't know. I don't know what we were called. Dude. Maybe we were called Blacklight. I, gotta, I would have to ask those guys. But anyway. Dread, Dreadnought is a sick name, <laughs> by well, the way. That, there was like Fifty bands called oh, dude. Dreadnought. I was in a. My first band was called Outcast, and there were like five thousand <laughs> bands called Outcast. <laughs> um, so yeah, I feel oh, like back, so 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 back to the story of being in the basement and hearing Sanitarium or whatever. That was when it like really clicked. Like, be I think when you're super young and you're listening to music. A lot of times it's because someone at your school is listening to it or, or you just, you like what people, you like what's popular. You like what people like. Right. And that was a big time for metal. And some of it was, I guess, not so scary where your, my parents would freak out or my mother still doesn't like metal, but she realized I made a career out of it. So now she supports it. But at that time, you know, it, especially I remember that, that guns and roses cover that was like, Oh my God, no way. And that was a big deal. The the Robert Williams one before it was yeah. switched. Yeah. Yeah. So all those, all those, um, bands that I would start to put faces to and names to was because of going to the record store or going to news Haven and seeing the magazines. And then, you know, you go, Oh, okay, this is this guy. This is that guy. I mean, Oh, so wait, so New <laughs> New Haven had a store called News Haven that was a magazine. Yes. that is that's fucking awesome. <laughs> yeah, and I could take I could take the bus down there. Take my, the city my, bus my, down pun, there. my pun hat is off to them for that. That's great. Yeah, and they and they had everything from Terrorizer to Maximum Rock and Roll to uh, Rolling Stone and Spin. So I could kind of differentiate, and I could kind of see, and so it, really in the early '90s, like being. 13 to 16 was when I put two and two together like, oh, okay, Metallica's at this level. They're like at like the U2 level. And then there's these other bands. And that's when I started thinking like, well, it's cooler if you can go to the show and you could go talk to the guy. Right. Right as af right after he got off stage. And, and like I was saying earlier, going down to that club, the moon, then I was hooked. And even though they weren't really supposed to let me in, they did. Um, I think that some of the shows were mostly like 18 plus or 21 plus, but they would let me in there 
especially if I was on a night that wasn't busy. And then I would go up to the people right after they rocked. And I was like, I can't believe this. I could just talk to this guy. Like, and that's what kind of made me want to gravitate towards, I guess, the more sort of smaller underground bands, just because I could connect more. It wasn't once that Black Album came out, and I, I defended the Black Album. I had arguments. I had physical confrontations. I mean, I, I was a ball boy for the Pilot Pen, which you, you part of the deal is you could, and I probably told this story a million times, but anyway, it was the short version. Is part of the deal is you could volunteer and you'd get, you'd get a free lunch. So you get mm-hmm. like a six inch from Subway and some high C and a bag of chips. And that was a big deal for all of us kids that were living in New Haven. We, a lot of us would go. And volunteer and so a kid there was you know dissing the black album and i i that's when i understood like sort of the metal elitism like that was my first yeah i guess introduction to it because i didn't understand why people were older than me i jammed enter sandman like 50 times in a row i kept rewinding it and rewinding it on the bus i'm like this is the best song ever but and it didn't seem like that much of a departure to me from and justice for all which was the introduction like you know seeing that video is for one and being like oh my god and just being like being just completely glued to the tv and what you hadn't learned yet was that every time a record comes out people say they want a record like the one that came before and this one sucks and then when the next record comes out the one that they all hated three years ago is now the classic that they're measuring the new one. Right. <laughs> and that's right. It every single time over and over and over. And that, that, yeah, it's an interesting thing about Metallica because for me, um, you know, uh, the garage days EP was the current release when I discovered the band. And then I went backwards and was, you know, full blown fan, uh, buying the justice cassette on street date. And I remember my little lunch table at our high school, which was all of the metal and punk and skater and, and reject kids, you know, all 15 of us or however many there were everyone was bummed i mean it was like you know everyone's like oh man bummed out about injustice for all because dyer's eve was the only fast song right and i remember eve like even then early on being you know the only voice at the table that was like i appreciate this and this and this about it and i like that they're you know they're not worried about what we think. They're doing what they want, which is always what they've wanted to do. And and it was around that time, or maybe even a year, you know, honestly, a year or two earlier, I think, where I got that journalism bug uh, because I was voraciously reading every magazine and every fanzine that I could get a hold of at my local newsstand. And I also liked having, you know, not only was I just soaking up all that knowledge primarily for my own benefit, but then I also discovered that I, I could be, become this kind of oracle in my little friend group. Because I remember telling everybody before South of Heaven came out, for example, dude, the new Slayer record's going to start off with a slow song. And everybody's like, no way. That's that's impossible. You know, Rain and Blood was like the fastest record anyone had ever heard for, you know, 28 minutes straight or whatever. And I'm like, no, no, Kerry King was saying, like, he doesn't just, you know, they've already reached the pinnacle of speed metal and they don't want to just keep repeating themselves and they just want to fuck with everybody and just have like a slow song start off the new album. And then it comes out and everybody's like, whoa, Downey was right. How did you know that? And like I was, you know, obviously way pre before internet and social media. And I was just like, so like 
already kind of finding my niche of, of uh, information, you know, just collecting and gathering and, and knowing things and understanding a little bit more about who the people were that were creating the things that I liked. So, you know, when the Black Album arrived, it was definitely like a culture shock for me in the sense that it was towards the end of high school and suddenly, you know, all of the jocks and Indiana rednecks who, you know, marginalized and made fun of those of us who were into things like Metallica, suddenly they were all on board. And it went from like, you know, jocks that were listening to, I don't, I don't know, new kids on the block. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like just whatever, you know, Garth Brooks, uh, I remember seeing like some Red Hot Chili Peppers merch showing up at school and then like the Black Album just like blew the doors down and then the my senior year in high school is when Nevermind came out and you know that that, that definitely pushes you that much further underground but I remember you know my metalhead friends by that point were like fuck Metallica I like Morbid Angel I like Death I like Obituary and I remember being like I, I like all those bands too, but I still like Metallica. Like it's like I can, yeah. you know, my, my palette is wide enough to, I can, I can get deeper and more extreme, but still be broad enough that, you know, I like guns and roses and all, all to all of my thrash and death metal friends, guns and roses were posers, you know, cause they had like teased right. spandex. Yeah. Um, same here. And yeah. And I was always on board for, on board for that. And it's interesting. You mentioned like, you know, arguments and physical confrontations over the Black Album. I, I, you know, and some some of my friends were even like, oh, you know, you're just a contrarian and you just enjoy this devil's advocate of the argument. And and certainly there's something to be said for that, um, the passionate debate about things. But, you know, I, I authentically back load and reload. And that and that got me into tons of arguments. Uh, well, now you're 90s going too far. 2000s. Yeah, I always I always get to the moment with the guests on Speak and Destroy where I've where I've gone too far. I'll tell I'll tell I'll tell you where I stop is I don't defend Lulu. So, all right, good. <laughs> yeah, I met my, somebody that did, and I was like, oh, all right, man, whatever. Was it, was I, it, you know, you got, that's it, when you was it Kirk Hammett? Was that who you met that defended <laughs> it? <laughs> well, you know, that's when I just Metallica. Pull out, I pull out my best Bill Burr, and I just go, fair enough. Fair enough. That's how you get out of any sort of conversation where you disagree, where you just go, fair enough, and then that's your out. Um, this is what you got to do. See, you're already going to have a fight, right? There's already going to be your older brother. There's going to be this person. There's going to be another per- Somebody's going to say something, right? And you're going to be, you're going to have a couple of wild fucking turkeys as you're standing over there, you know? eating a fucking appetizer or two and somebody's going to be getting on your nerves. Maybe somebody's fucking wife who won't shut the fuck up. Right. Why the fuck did he marry her? Maybe, maybe it's the husband. Jesus Christ. What is she doing with this guy? All he does is fucking talk about himself. Something's going to drive you up the fucking wall. If it's not this, it's going to be that. This is, this is the phrase. This is the phrase that's going to save your day, okay? Save the whole fucking day, because you're not going to change anybody's opinion. All these fucking jerk-offs still yelling, how could you vote for Trump? Well, what the fuck about Hillary? You're not changing. You're just going to fucking yell at each other. So here's the phrase you got to use to get through this fucking day, all right? Along with the alcohol or whatever drug you fucking want to use. Just fair enough. You know? Hey, fair enough. That's all, that's all you got to do. What'd you say? Hey, 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 guys, 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 fair enough. 
Fair enough. Whatever. This is my this is my take on Lulu, and I've said this on this podcast before, so I'll keep I'll keep it brief. Um, I said this to Rob Flynn actually. My take on Lulu is this: I don't begrudge them for the experiment, right? Like somebody said, "Oh, you guys should play with Lou Reed at the Rock Hall," and then you know somewhere in there it was like, "You guys should jam," and somehow this album happens. Like, yeah, do that. Have Lou Reed to Metallica HQ, riff with Lou Reed, make some weird album. Put it away. You don't have to put everything out. <laughs> put it in a vault. And and then someday, you know, when like the band's retired or a significant band member, you know, God forbid, has, has passed away. When, when we're in that stage of the legacy band where it's like, you know, Tupac, where it's like, oh, we found some stuff in the vaults or Elvis or something. That's when you go, oh, hey, here's this weird curiosity. Did you know one time Metallica made a secret album with Lou Reed? And it's like weird and fucked up and not very good but interesting that's the parallel universe where i'm okay with the lulu album really well see okay so <laughs> so you won't even give it that the oddity <laughs> well no the only comparison i could say is like when there's there's two there's a lot of people that are surrounded by what i call yes men or yes people now yes. would be the the politically correct so it's people that just say yes because they're either afraid to lose their job or they're afraid to dis you know to be to be say something that could be misconstrued as disrespect. Mm -hmm. And I remember there was a very scary tough guy hardcore band where the singer was like um he was just like totally out of key. And I was about to say that but they were like, don't say that. This guy's standing like right there. And I was like, well, it's just constructive criticism. They're like, it doesn't matter. He, <laughs> he's already been told that and he's keeping it like that. And, and don't, don't say anything. And I was like, but people are going to like clown on him because of that. Like it's, and I'm not a, a musician, you know, at this point, like I don't consider myself a real musician, but, and then I remember just because people were scared of, this guy, they were physically intimidated by the guy. They just, they said, it sounds great. It sounds great. And it, and it, it wasn't. And not that Lou Reed is a, a physically intimidating guy, but you get to a certain point mm, in yeah. your career where, and I'm not a huge Lou Reed fan. I respect the writing, but I, I mean, Lou Reed, Hey, for people who, people like myself, we got to ride one note. We could barely do one note. Like, Lou Reed gave a lot of people a lot of inspiration because you could take very limited skills and go very far with it. I think Dylan is another example. If you have, if you're articulate, yeah. it, what you lack in, in, in maybe vocal prowess and range, but you're articulate with your words and you're articulate with your, with your, with your lyric writing and, and your, I guess your delivery I mean, and that could be the same. The same could be said about the first couple of Metallica's, right? Like they're yeah. And I not... and I always say I always use Kurt Cobain as the example where he's not a good guitar player, he's not a great singer, he's an amazing songwriter and an amazing performer. And what he and what he did with his guitar playing ability and what he did with his voice was magical. You know. Yeah, I'm I'm happy of, that kids know. are totally. I agree, and I'm happy that kids go back and listen to those Nirvana and, and Metallica records. And that after hearing everything so processed and so auto-tuned where it doesn't like 
the songs are just so good. It doesn't matter if someone goes flat or someone goes sharp, you know, whether it's James yeah. or, or Kurt, it's just, or even Danzig. If you listen to those misfits records, um, that's the character. It's like the character in it. Oh, so yeah. I think Lou, and those misfit songs were like the, the song structure doesn't even make sense where it's like, Oh the, yes. The chorus Six lyrics measures. are over the, the verse this time or, you know, yeah, exactly. Like it just, Right. How many measures is this? They do like five and a half measures of something or yeah. So, and that's the beauty of it. Like the character of it. So my guess, my theory is that Lou Reed at this point, he's older. He's such a character. He's such a a legend in in certain people's minds where they just go, yeah, this sounds great. And then maybe Metallica did the same thing. I don't know. I don't know. It's just a theory. Filmmakers and actors and, and things like that too. I mean, Imagine, yeah, like uh, look at De Niro. There's nobody, there's nobody telling De Niro, don't do this movie. The one with fucking Zach Efron, I got like, I got like 20 minutes into it. Uh, bad grandpa. I'm like, first of all, there's already bad Santa. They're like, like, what it like, yeah, and wasn't there like a Johnny Knoxville grandpa movie or something too? Like, yeah, yeah, what was the Johnny Knoxville grandpa movie called? I'd see if you if you put a gun to my head, I would say bad grandpa, but <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, like what? It's how like the same movie? Yeah. How is that? Well, and you how just is... imagine. I mean, like you read. I don't know. If, you know the story about uh, when Kevin Smith directed this buddy cop movie with Bruce Willis. Dirty Grandpa. Sorry, Dirty, Dirty grandpa. grandpa. Um, and it's like, yeah, I mean, you know, you're Kevin Smith, and and it's Bruce Willis. And it's it's a little awkward to tell that guy like, hey, look, can we let's get another take? That wasn't very good. <laughs> what know, movie was like, that? It's John McClane. Uh, it was called like, <sighs> I want to say it might have been called Cop Movie. It had some really generic, terrible name, but it was it was Tracy Morgan and Bruce Willis. It's supposed to be a buddy cop comedy, and it's uh, no way. Good. I gotta see this. Is it terrible? Yeah, and it's one of the few Kevin Smith movies that he directed but didn't write. It was basically him trying to like okay, I'm going to do a big studio picture and just like be the director. And, uh, Oh man, I got to see this. Yeah. And there's a great, um, Kevin Smith talks about it when he does like speaking things. And I think he wrote a bunch of cop out. That's what it's called. Cop out. Um, he talks, he talks a lot about like the, the beef that him and, uh, Bruce Willis ended up with after the fact. Um, and yeah, and Bruce Willis would just, you know, tear a page out of the script and be like, yeah, I'm not doing this. I don't like this dialogue. I would lay down in traffic for the rest of my life for Tracy Morgan. Yeah. Because were it not for Tracy, I might have killed either myself or <laughs> someone else in the making of fucking. So you were disappointed, out. beyond disappointed. It was, it was. Uh, look, because I went you in were, that's why you went into the movie. It was one of the main reasons. Yeah, I mean, look, while I was there, I was able to accomplish everything else I needed to accomplish, and as much as learn about marketing, understand how to work on a team with others and shit. And, and you know what? Honestly, you, you were given the gift of not having to tell your dad that Bruce Willis was a dick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ultimately, there's that. But let me tell you, yeah. I'm sure he knew. <laughs> He, he, he knew from the fucking jump. Uh, I wish he just could have communicate, communicated to me from the afterlife. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, it, it was tough. It was difficult, dude. I've never been involved in a situation like that where um, one component does not come. He's not. He's not in it. He's not, not in the box it. at all. Yeah, it's not. He's just doing a job so he can get by. I, I've heard of. Yeah, it was. It was fucking soul. Well, I'm sorry about that. Really? So, but again, that's not a lot of people. Are like, oh, you're just trying to blame the movie on him. No, but look, I had no fucking help from this dude whatsoever. I'm just like, well, I guess you're Bruce Willis and I'm Kevin Smith, and <laughs> you know, yeah, like you're saying, like the uh, 
you get to a certain stature where, yeah, I'm sure it was awkward for someone in the room oh. with Metallica and Lou Reed to, to uh, you know, raise their hand. And right. Go, uh, you know, right. Stay in your lane. Uh, see, that's why Lars's dad in the movie is I was is just great. about to say, dude, they should have had, like, they should have had Torb in there. Yep. Yeah. Dude, I have, speaking of How patches, is there not a shirt? I was just, How, dude, dude, I have a because, patch. I have a patch. We were talking about patches. And it's unofficial, unlicensed merchandise, I suspect. I'll send you I'll send you a picture of it when we're done. I have a patch that's a cartoon of Lars's dad and it says delete that. <laughs> I would say, you know, if, if if you said if you were our advisor, what would you say? Then I would say delete that. Dude, I was gonna say I'm making a shirt <laughs> right now of his oh, dad, man. just of the beard and his face. And because uh, I have Lars's Lars was right shirts, which it's been great. People have been you know sending me pictures of them at the Metallica shows wearing their Lars was, was oh, right fuck shirt. Yeah. Fuck yeah, dude! Uh, that's an because... argument. That's an argument I've had a million times, and I will and I will tell people. And at some point, I'm going to do a whole episode of the of the uh, podcast about it. I'm going to. I already know I'm going to call it Napster of Puppets. If you listen to. <laughs> Uh, go on YouTube and find this Charlie Rose episode. It's like a full on, like the whole hour or whatever in depth. It's and no disrespect to Chuck D. He's a legend. He's an icon. He follows me on Twitter along with thousands of other people. Um, but it's Chuck D. And Lars. Is that a humble brag there? That that was a humble brag. <laughs> and by the way, uh, that was a that was a that was a by definition textbook humble brag. Because <laughs> I get, I get into this conversation with people because people go like, oh, humble brag, and I'm like, bro, that's just a brag. <laughs> but no, you caught me. That was a that was a legit humble brag, an actual one. Um, so <laughs> it's Lars and Chuck D and Charlie Rose, and it's like 2000, 2001. It's like height of Napster, and everything Lars says comes true. Like yes, you watch it now, and it's just like you know. And he he even he was so early where he's like, you know, this is going to open the floodgates for movies and books and video games. Like he's. He's so far ahead. And meanwhile, Chuck D, God bless him, he's like, I think Napster's going to, we're going to have more record labels and people are going to make more money and it's going to be great. Like he thought it was going to be great for everyone. And I always said, you know, they got painted very unfairly as as the rich, greedy rock stars who are complaining. And I'm like, no, they they're, they recognize that they have a platform that's large enough to raise this issue and go out on a limb that others either can't or won't. And for them, it was always about control. Taylor Swift is like viewed at like pulling her or keeping her stuff off Apple music and Spotify. She's viewed as like a hero to the people. Yeah. And like to the, to the little guy. And back then, and I remember because I had, I had been given money, right? Like that is their, yes, yes. (laughs) I mean, for, for Metallica, about... it was because a, a demo version of their Mission Impossible song started getting played on the radio, and they were like, where did this come from? That's how the whole Metallica thing started. Right. They just didn't want their unfinished demo being played. I mean, dude, they're, it's so funny. Metallica and the internet, for years now, you can buy every one of their shows from the soundboard, like two days after the show happens. Yeah, and, warts and, and all. I love warts it. Warts and all, exactly. Oh, dude. Yeah, yeah Lars was right. I got to get one of those shirts from you because that's amazing. Yeah, shoot me your address and I'll send you one. But it, it and now, oh, and and at the time, okay, so perseverance, like, there was a big, like, we had a recount on that, 
when uh, because it would leaked so early and we didn't understand. And then people, you know, my uh, publicist at the time actually might have been my European or or, uh, or UK publicist at the time was like, yeah, when they ask about the downloading. You know, you're you're at this stage where I mean, we were already a big band, but we had toured so much of the first album that we were like, you know, we got to a lot of big crowds, but we we're still we needed to make a real impact with the Perseverance album, so we had to kind of ride that line where it's like, don't come off like it's all about money because in hardcore and punk rock, if you God forbid you make any money then you're called a sellout and the kids yeah. jump ship and you know, we're, you're always being told how fickle the fans are and be careful. Cause it's, it's huge one night and you're, you're gone the next day. And, and um, I, I did an earth crisis show in 1995 and all the hardcore kids in Indianapolis were so pissed when they found out I paid earth crisis $400. Right. <laughs> right. $400 so, dude <laughs> for a whole band and their crew. That was rock, they were rock right. stars. They were rock stars. Right. There was like there was whole like there was like boycott strife like zines and all this stuff because they were <laughs> at the at at some you know at this point they were getting like a thousand dollar guarantee and people yeah. couldn't believe that and and we're like, Well, if you come to the show, you're entertained. Yeah. Like they, and, also, they, and, and also and also somebody's making money. That was always the hilarious thing to me too. It's like right. do the math. Like someone made money tonight. Why should why shouldn't it be the band? Right. So, okay. so yeah, so you're saying perseverance. Right. So it was leaked very early and we didn't know the, I guess, detriment it was going to cause to the first week. And, um, you know, there was at one point there was talks we were going to do 50,000 copies the first week. And this was going to be the biggest, you know, this is what more than this is more than what some hardcore bands had sold in their entire career, like sure. over discographies. And and so. Um, you know, then we started to hear, you know, people are changing the titles and it, and there's a lot of, at that time, what people didn't understand was there was like, this was also used as a way to sabotage people. So now Metallica speaking out about it. Now everybody's like, well, let's put out all their stuff up there. Mm -hmm. Let's, let's be like, fuck you. So you had to like ride this line where you didn't want people to sabotage you. Um, but they did that anyways for us. Like they changed our song titles and put them on long line wire to be like racist titles. And oh, wow. you know, anytime you become successful, you don't realize that there's hundreds, if not thousands of people, they're very, they're, they're really angry about this. And why wasn't it me? Why wasn't it my band? I work just as hard and, you know, and there's all these reasons and, and, and I would be like, what the fuck? I thought people would just be happy that, you know, a bunch of kids who had nothing, literally didn't have enough money to even have instruments. And now we're on a major label. And I thought it was like the American dream. I thought people were going to be like, you know, psyched. But then I started hearing about what message boards uh, were saying. And it was fuck us. We sold out. We went on Universal. I'm just going to steal the record. And, and I was heartbroken. I was like, why? We work so hard. We, we're not rich. We don't have anything. I was living in a in an apartment um, with all my shit piled to the ceiling and I have a, a an infant daughter and I remember being late for the rent and I remember getting back from the Sepultura tour and being like, oh, thank God I made money on this tour so because I can pay rent. And we were considered like a big band at that point. We sold yeah. over 100,000 records on, Absolutely. on Victory and I barely could pay my rent. And... Uh, and I had my girlfriend at home who was like a saint, like supporting me. 
you know, raising my daughter and being supportive of me being gone. And then I got, you know, all these people who are quote unquote, like my friends and my fans, like going on and just stealing the record months before it was out. It was heartbreaking, but you know, it yeah. still came out. They did a recount. I think at the end of the day, it still did like 38,000 first week. And it was, um, it went on to sell over 400,000 copies. So like it, but it, it makes you think like, wow, if, if, if it wasn't for LimeWire and, and Napster and all that stuff, we probably would have had a gold or platinum album. Right. And, um, and we probably could have, with those extra copies sold, we probably could have created a small fortune for a lot of the other bands. And that, and, and that, and that's the, that's exactly what I was going to say is people don't realize that those sales, um, achievements, aren't about money or how many, how many more royalties you might've gotten, but it's also about the opportunities that are afforded to you when you reach different, uh, you know, peaks of, of accomplishment in the eyes of the industry. Because then if it's like the difference between 400,000 and 500,000 might seem negligible, but all of a sudden at the time, if it's like, Oh, Hey, has a gold record, you know, maybe you get that tour that you were up against three other bands for, that you wouldn't get otherwise. And that, that, that whole snowball thing, like a lot of fans don't realize that that's where uh, the real importance for better or worse of a lot, you know, first week sales and all that stuff. Like that, those are the, those are the metrics that people look at to determine what opportunities they may or may not give to you. Absolutely. And people come up to me today, even just this morning, I had a tweet saying, you know, takes a certain band on tour. So I asked my friend, Hey, what did this band scan? Mm -hmm. And, uh, they said, okay, it scanned um, 400 records first week. And I thought, well, all right, there's, you know, even a first of four at this point would be a band that scanned 10,000 records first right. week or 10,000 records like Life of Project, but has a couple hundred thousand streams and has it like, like second of four is this band Code Orange who scanned maybe 10,000 records and I don't know how long it's been out, but it started to make me think like, okay, this band, they have songs on NXT. Someone just told me they have a song on, uh, on adult swim coming out and they only sold 10,000 records. So I would think that at least 90,000 people have pirated that record. So if that band was selling and this is just because, okay, it's hardcore music people that's in, in these genres, nobody's paying for music, right? Or they're paying for merch, they're paying for vinyl, but they're not paying for, but it, actually if they were paying for vinyl, then the scan would be much higher. Right. Um, so there's a disconnect there and, and that is probably costing that band and the bands that they could help a lot. Like imagine for if sure. all those fans brought if, if all those fans bought their record, they wouldn't be second of four on a tour. They would be direct support on the Slayer tour, or they'd be in that behemoth slot because behemoth, um, is going to be, you know, they're on that first of three slot in, and that's a band that I don't know, check their scan. I would imagine it's, imagine the Satanist probably scanned 60,000 records, but those fans are not fickle, hardcore punk rock fans. Right. And that's where you that's where you know every every one of those sixty thousand people are gonna come to the show and buy yes. merch. And and also when we talk about these economics and even just being able to support yourself and continue doing what you love, 
putting together, and I think a lot of fans are unaware of this, putting together the right support bill. At this point, unless you're Metallica who can who can afford to, you know, they're it's like Coachella, like it's sold out anyway, <laughs> you know, so whoever you want to have open, you can. For really any other band, even, you know, even Slayer, even Megadeth, even, you know, Avenged Sevenfold, Hatebreed, it matters who you put together in that bill um, because you have to give kids all that minute much more incentive the reason to you know leave their house and come to your show versus going to another show or going to no show at all and so it's you know it's the the activity and the way that a smaller band is able to demonstrate their value with whatever metrics they can matters to that headliner because it matters who the headliner takes out you can't just give those slots away uh, because it will ultimately hurt your ability to help other bands down the road if your band then becomes smaller as a result of doing too many favors oh yeah absolutely i mean it's it's i've dealt with it my entire career i mean there was a time where the packages that i want to put together i had promoters fighting me tooth and nail like do not put this band on the and i would and then when the show didn't perform, they would say, well, you didn't take these bands that we wanted you to take. Yeah. And then there's been times where, um, you know, the promoters were wrong and there's been times when the promoters were right. But at the end of the day, now um, those those days are over. It's that time is over. So you're not going to see a band blow up and just be able to take whoever they want out these these new bands that blow up they won't have that control their managers won't have that control it's it's becoming more and more about the numbers of the last tour and who drew on that or you're gonna see like a big legacy band like deftones they could take whoever they want gojira they could take whoever they want uh lamb of god they could take whoever they want. but even then um there is there's a there, there's a different process, and a lot of these managers they look at the sound scan first, then they look at the social media numbers, then they look at the uh, finals of the last headline tour. And uh, a band that I've been trying to help out, they just lost a tour to a band that supported them, mm-hmm. and I and it was upsetting, and I was like, man. And then the reason why was the promoters just it was had nothing to do with the scans or the legacy or the fans or the headline numbers. And it had everything to do with taking a younger band because these two older bands. Yep. That's are the look they were looking for. Yeah. To be older. And I Optics. go, wow. So there. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of there's a lot of of research that goes into There's so this much stuff. that goes into it. And you and I both know from experience as well, at the end of the day, when one of those package tours is over, if the, uh, if the, if the tour does well, the support bands will want to take the lion's share of the credit. And if the tour doesn't perform well, everybody blames the headliner. Yes. So <laughs> you're damned if you do, damned if you don't as the headliner in those situations. Because, yeah, if the shows are packed out, you get your main support band saying, well, this is pretty much a co-headliner. I mean, you know, these kids are here for us. And, uh, you know, when the show doesn't do well, the main support band goes, oh, we, we thought this headliner was worth more. What What the hell, you guys? Right. It's a lose-lose on that. It's when you're sitting in that seat. People don't realize. And if you're not giving those certain markets 
a Thursday or a Friday or a Saturday and those people's in the, in the, in the market say, you know what? I, this is a Tuesday night. I'm sitting this one out. I got work. I got school. That Tuesday doesn't perform your hell. Even though that tour might've performed Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, in every other market, you're held to what that tour did in that Tuesday in that market. Mm Mm-hmm. The next time, even if you're coming back on a Friday, they're like, well, last time you were here, you only did this. And you're like, but it was a Tuesday. Yes. (laughs) And so now, um, and luckily with Hatebreed, we're we're in the position where we don't really play that game in Europe. And if we do, we do it in areas where there's festivals like in the next country over or eight hours away. So if you're going to, like I remember we did a, we did a show with Twisted Sister somewhere in the area of either Basque Country or Italy or Spain, and I, and we never get offered the, those types of shows, right? And we got offered it, and it's a later slot, and it's not really our style of bands. I think Dokken was on there and Twisted Sister, and, but you know you you know you're gonna go there, and it's gonna be good money, and there's gonna be a crowd there. They might not be our crowd but it's going to be 10 times what we would play to in a club. And you might get a hundred or 200 of those people when you go back and you do a club show. And so we did it and the show wasn't half bad. Some of our fans came we played really late, but it was, it was all good. And there was maybe one sort of crossover band on there like Exodus or overkill or somebody who kind of bridged the gap with the twisted sister and us. And so when we went back, we went back twice. We went back once with Napalm Death and Exploited. All the shows were sold out except like one or two. And then we went back again with locals. And even though they weren't, you know, the 800 to 1,000 people like they were with Exploited and Napalm, they were still like five, 600 people. One show was like 450. So now when we go back, we have those two tours under our belt subsequently. So like you have to subsequently what is the right term there um, um subsequently yeah so you you know that's the thing that when people are saying oh why isn't it this coming here why is this coming there you're you're held to a certain flame of your last attendance you could have a huge album boost you know there are some established bands where they they come out with an album and it might be better than their previous album mm-hmm. and so there's a boost but you can't you got to prove that live. You have to go out there. And I mean, even at the Metallica level, I was hearing different reports of like stadiums are half full and should it have been in arenas. And, and I don't know, that's not my place to say, but I totally understood when I saw Avenge Sevenfold and Volbeat got the tour. I'm like, it told, it makes sense. You know, and this, this brings us around full circle, uh, to, to wrap up. Um, because we, we got to talking about putting together packages and support bands and so on. You know, Hatebreed, you've toured with Slayer many times. Uh, you know, talking way back in the day with Sepultura, kind of at their at their peak. Um, you know, you every bill you just mentioned as a fan just sounds amazing. I mean, I would love to see Hatebreed overkill and Exodus any night of the week. What's it going to take to get Hatebreed on tour with Metallica? I'm sure you've tried. I'm sure there's been conversations. I, I know that I know they're aware. I know you've had Metallica guys on your podcast. I know that they've got to be fans. I mean, they're they're fans of so many great bands. What do we got to do, man? Do we do we start like 
Like, should I start a letter writing campaign? Is that still happen? Do people do that? I don't know, man. What do we do? I don't know. I yeah, I hope I hope it'll still happen. We'll see. I mean, we did those two shows yeah. in Germany. They were great, and we're appreciative of whatever we can get. But if it does, if it does go back to the arena sort of uh, routing, you know, the arena tour, and they there's another band on there that is more of a radio rock band and then we're the heavy band opener. I mean, we would do it. I mean, the, the last time we did an arena tour, it was short. It was 2015 with Slipknot. And if you had told me in 2009, Oh, you know, in 2015, you're going to tour arenas with Slipknot again. I probably would have been like, I don't know about that, but there's, there's four or five bands with staying power in America that can do arenas. And that's, Metallica, Slipknot, Five Finger Death Punch. I would guess some of the bands that aren't that active but still can do it. Yeah, System yeah, of I would Down, say System Disturbed. of a Down. Yeah, if they exactly. I was going to say those two bands if they were if they were doing anything. Yeah, but the Dream was... Tour is Metallica, Original Misfits, Hatebreed. That's what we need to do. And if you up the if you wow. up the ticket price for that, I know the ticket prices are kind of high for the Vegas and for the LA show, but I, I'm hearing they're both pretty much sold out. So dude, people the, are dude, willing to pay. The LA show supposedly sold out in 60 seconds. So, yeah, you know, so for everybody who's like, Oh, those ticket prices, it's like, well, I mean, the proof's in the pudding right there. Um, yeah. If you're selling those out in 60 seconds. Yeah, dude, that LA show was on my daughter's birthday. How about them apples? Yeah. Um, but so I don't think I'm going, but I might, I no, might, I might go to don't Vegas. do it. I might go to, go Vegas, to Vegas instead. There you go. Yeah, it's two days before. You you coming out for either of those shows? I might. I might. I just did two like signature shirts for Doyle. If anybody wants to check them out, they're up at martyrstore.net. One is a protein punk rock and pull-ups, and the other is a Doyle Riffby shirt. And Doyle actually said, send the money, send his royalties to Jeremy Saffer, the photographer, which was ger very generous. Oh, wow. Jeremy and Saffer's then, been a longtime supporter of Doyle, so that's cool. Yeah, and uh, and shout out to Jeremy. And so, and then he said, for the profits from the other shirt, use it as a plane. Use it for the plane ticket to go see Misfits at either one of those shows. So I got to just figure it out. I have That's a live so podcast cool. December twenty third in St. Louis. If anybody wants to come, it's at the Blueberry Hill Duck Room. We're doing two sh two live podcast shows. One's going to be like a Christmas spectacular, and the other one's actually they're both going to be Christmas themed. Uh, Don Jameson and Howard Jones are my guests. It's going to be a lot of fun. We did yeah. Randy. We did Randy live there, and we had a blast. So I've heard, I've wants heard to of some of those guys. Yes, you have. Them guys. I mean, uh, Hojo's practically your co-host at this point. <laughs> yeah, he's got two episodes coming he's up. Like, he's like the Ed McMahon of the Jostas show. <laughs> he really is. <laughs> he's got the laugh. He's got the Ed McMahon laugh. So it's The perfect. Seth Rogen, as people like to call him. Dude, okay. Everyone's everyone's been saying I sound like Seth Rogen since I started doing podcasts. And there's I, I've done some voiceover work recently. Yeah, you do. Yeah, what, you do. I'm, you do have a little bit of I'm Seth Rogen. I'm still straight edge, I swear. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I tweeted at, I tweeted at him the other day, and I said, "Hey, if uh, if there's ever a Pineapple Express animated series, and you need the low cost uh, fake Seth Rogen, apparently I'm I can I can do the job." <laughs> we'll have to do a Seth Rogen like uh, face off between you and Howard, and we'll see who does it better. Ooh, that's a good idea. I, I accept that gauntlet. Can we do that on the Josta show? Yeah, we can anytime. Uh, well, Jamie, thank you so much for coming on Speaking Destroy and talking Metallica and related topics. Um, love to have Ryan you back. Ryan Downey, sometime. good chatting with you, brother. Yes, my friend. Um, well, you have a good rest of your day, and I'll talk to you soon. You too, man. Thanks. All right. Later. See ya.
That does it for this episode of Speak and Destroy. My thanks again to Jamie Josta. You can find him at jamiejosta.com. He's all over social media. Keep up to date with everything going on with the podcast and, of course, everything going on with Hatebreed and all of his various projects. You can find me on Twitter at Ryan Downey, on Instagram at SuperheroHQ, and you can also find Speak and Destroy on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Speak and Destroy is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. As always, you guys have been great, and I've been Ryan J. Downey.